We do have a special guest tonight, and that's Brother Tony Crocker. Brother Tony and his family are all with him tonight, and uh, he is a missionary in Mongolia, and that's in Asia, and he's going to tell us uh, more about that and more about his work. And, and, and Brother Tony, before you get through tonight, if you'd just share with our people the, the need that you have for special works, several of our guys have talked about they'd like to know if there's a need so that we might get involved with you. Uh, in that this evening but before brother tony comes i'm going to ask that we stand for a word of prayer and we're just going to ask god's blessings upon this service this evening and uh just ask that god speaks to our heart about missions tonight and as we go to our lord in prayer brother chris would you go ahead and lead us in prayer please It's a pleasure to be with College Avenue and Fifth Street Baptist Church tonight. It is a joy uh, to be in West Texas, and we are so enjoying the warm reception of the people here. Uh, I certainly am uh, out of my elements. I'm a South Missouri hillbilly, so we've come out, and I was joking with the girls as we pulled into town. I said, dare I ask the church why this place is called Level Land, um, you know? But uh, certainly a beautiful sky you can see here and, and uh, just a beautiful horizon. And it was a, a wonderful trip we actually had yesterday. And I thank you all for your prayers for us as we traveled. Um, to uh, introduce ourselves, uh, my wife, Laura, you may or may not have met her father at some time. John Lindsay is our BMA missionary in Ghana, West Africa. Uh, he and Margaret have been there for 10 years. Laura's never lived on a foreign mission field until we went to Mongolia, but Laura is their daughter. And so that is our relationship with some of our other BMA family that you may or may not have been aware of. And uh, uh, we have uh, been both... Uh, pastor family as well as uh, your missionary and so the BMA has been a great blessing to us and I can truly say from the bottom of my heart that it is a, a joy and an honor uh, to be your missionary and to be able to represent the Lord uh, in a country like Mongolia and also to be able to come back from a place like that and share with you the opportunities that God is opening up to us. Now as you can see I've got a big beautiful family and I praise God for them. Uh, the Lord blessed us with, with four daughters while I was a pastor, and uh, a lot of folks uh, gave me a little bit of ribbing about being a big fellow with four girls, and all I could tell them was, God only gives girls to men that can take care of them, amen? So uh, uh, sitting to my side in this picture is Lindsay, our oldest daughter. She's 13, and right now she's with the two youngest ones. Our uh, littlest girl had fallen asleep in the car on the trip out here. 
Uh, beside Laura are our two middle daughters. Uh, Mackenzie will turn 11 next month, and uh, Anna Grace just turned 9 in December. Uh, day before her ninth birthday, Anna prayed and received Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, and I praise God for that. Also, Mackenzie was our very first uh, soul one in Mongolia in, during our uh, family devotion. So when we came back, we didn't baptize her over there because uh, Christianity is quite foreign to the Mongols, and we knew it would be confusing to be baptizing a little child, and everybody else will think, well, I need to baptize my kid too. So we came back to our home church, which is First Baptist Church in Potosi, uh, Missouri, and uh, last, well, two weeks ago this Sunday, I had the privilege of baptizing both of them at our home church. So I praise the Lord for that. There in front of me is Avery Claire. Avery's the strongest of all of them. She can take me and wrap me around her littlest finger. And uh, then we've got Isaac Nathaniel. Isaac was born in Mongolia. Uh, he has a U.S. citizen's born abroad uh, birth certificate. And uh, uh, we praise God for the blessing of Isaac while we've been on the mission field. And he is a, a big fella, as you can see in that picture. He's as big as his five-year-old sister already, and he's just two. So I'm proud of him and proud of all, all four of my girls as well. But God has given us a, a blessed opportunity, uh, an opportunity I hope to uh, share with you. Let's see, we just hit screen save. Um, a blessed opportunity to share with you about a country that you may not know a lot about. So let's talk just a little about Outer Mongolia and about the people. Now, Mongolia is located almost smack in the middle of the Asian continent. It does not touch an ocean, and yet it is still a very large country that's sandwiched between Russia and China. Now, just its location and its neighbors tells you that it's had a pretty interesting political history. Amen? So, uh, over the last century, they've had quite a bit of, uh, of turmoil with communism and earlier on even with the Chinese. So, you can appreciate the uh, struggles they've went through. Uh, as a nation... Mongolia is a large nation. I believe it's the 18th largest nation on the planet. It's as large as the entire southeastern U.S. If you basically drew a line from Arkansas and Louisiana to the eastern seaboard, you're covering roughly the same number of square miles as the country of Mongolia. And yet it's only home to about 3 million people, very sparsely populated country. The reason for that is it's a very harsh land that will not support a great population of people. As I travel around to churches, I like to tell them that we are uh, certainly missionaries sent to the nation of Mongolia, but more than that, I ask you to pray for us as missionaries sent to the Mongolian people. You see, there are more Mongolian people that live outside of the country than inside of Mongolia. Three million in Mongolia. In Inner Mongolia, China, which is the northernmost province of China, you have over four and a half million Mongolian people that live there. And also in Boratia, Russia, which is in Lake Baikal, that large lake you see to the north side of the country, in, uh, they're, they're the Buryat Mongols, number uh, between one half and one million people. So you have nearly six million people in the neighboring nations that would identify themselves as Mongolian people. So uh, over two-thirds of the folks that are called Mongolians live outside of the country they would identify as their motherland, a very interesting people group that's scattered all over 
uh, Central Asia. But this uh, map also should show you something of the topography of the country. If you notice to the north and west, there are some vast mountain ranges in that region. And to the north of that area is Russian Siberia. And Siberia is synonymous with cold weather. The joke of the Mongols in that region is they get all of the weather that the Russians can't take. And in that area of the country, it can actually reach minus 50 in the wintertime. Right now, we're right in the, the midst of winter in Mongolia. Common temperatures in our city, minus 20 to minus 30 uh, of the nights and warming up to a balmy zero uh, at noonday. So we have a very cold and long wintertime. Down in the south region of the Gobi, now a lot of folks will think that it must be then a very hot, a very cold climate all the time if you've got that kind of a winter. But actually, in the Gobi Desert, that's the nor northernmost desert in the world, all of that flat area you see in the bottom of the country is, uh, is right in the middle and the north of the Gobi Desert. Uh, the southernmost Imig of Mongolia, southernmost state called South Gobi, is uh, known to reach temperatures of up to 150 degrees in the summertime. Nearly uninhabitable country in that region. Uh, you're looking at a state, a region in the south of the country that's the size of the state of Oklahoma and home to 50,000 people. Uh, just very sparsely inhabited. People simply cannot live there in great numbers. And quite frankly, once you discover air conditioning, you don't want to live there at all, you know? So that's the way how it works in those countries. But this is the land that God has sent us to. Our uh, city is just north of the center of Mongolia. And Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, is, is very soon going to be home to over 40% of the population of the entire country of Mongolia. And well over a million people are already living in our capital city. So you see that we have a natural center for, uh, for ministry to begin taking place to reach the entire nation with the gospel. The Mongol people, their history would begin, of course, with the, the origin of all languages at the Tower of Babel. And from the Tower of Babel, they began to disperse over the face of the earth, all men uh, in obedience to what the Lord had commanded to have dominion over the earth. And if any place speaks of man's ability to have dominion outside of where the Eskimos live, I believe that Outer Mongolia certainly uh, uh, takes the task on. Uh, they live and have lived for millennia in these small felt tents called gir. Uh, these tents are 10 to 15 feet wide. Uh, in the western part of the country, they might get much larger, but where we're at, never larger than 15 feet. I would say that one of your pews probably would not fit inside of one of the gir, and yet in your sanctuary, we could easily fit four, maybe five tents uh, here. Each one of these, the dwelling place of a Mongolian family. The family is a three-generation unit in Mongolia. The grandparents, the parents, and the children live in this house. Not uncommon to have 12 to 15 people living in a 15-foot wide tent. All one room. Doesn't it sound just cozy to everybody? You just want to bundle up and eat popcorn, don't you? Um, but this is the, uh, the preferred housing for most of the people, mainly because it's inexpensive, but by design, we'll go into that, but by design, it wasn't really meant to be a city dwelling 
uh, place. And yet in our city, there are vast uh, ger horols is what they're called. These ger districts where the very, very poor people are living. And in these ger districts is uh, where uh, people are having a lot of problem with sanitation. There's no plumbing. Uh, there are no toilets in gears. It's all uh, um, uh, outhouses and uh, water is drawn in and often uh, the uh, outhouse uh, waters, if they overflow, are going to mix in with the uh, groundwaters. And so you have all kinds of dysentery problems that take place in these. This is a uh, district that's immediately behind the house that we were living in all the way up into the spring of this past year. And you can see just hundreds of people living like this, but the preferred way to live with a gear is uh, called the hotel. The hotel was for centuries the base unit of the Mongolian culture. Just uh, two or three families that would be living together. Usually they're, they're extended family of one another. You might be living with cousins or uncles that are all uh, in uh, two or three gears that are around you working with the herds and flocks. You see, for all of their history, they've been nomadic herding people. And uh, if you go to the countryside today, I'm not sure. Yeah, we've got a pretty good picture there. And you might be able to see two or three hotels as you go and, and just peer off into the countryside on this particular summer day. And during that time, when all of the grass is greenest and herds can be relatively close together, they like to get within, you know, a mile of one another so they can visit with their neighbors and be able to see folks that they don't see all the time. But whenever the lean years come, they, of course, spread out farther and farther across the lands. And this is how they have uh, managed themselves. Over one-third of the people, even today, are living this nomadic herding life. These little tents can be taken down and put up in about an hour and a half, and so they can move in a single day. They're the original mobile home, I say, and they can move themselves around the country and, and get from one green pasture to the next, and this is how they've lived off of their, uh, what they call their five snouts. They call themselves the people of five snouts. Uh, they have their... Uh, cashmere goats. One of their most popular items that is produced in Mongolia is cashmere wool. And uh, they produce it there and then Dillard sells it to you for a fortune is what they do. But uh, these animals, also their cattle, uh, sheep, the uh, cattle and yak are considered uh, the same animal by the Mongolians. Uh, different, of course, in type, but, uh, but very similar. Uh, the sheep, also the uh, Bactrian camel. A lot of folks uh, wonder that region where the two-humped camel is. Well, the Bactrian camel is a native animal to Mongolia. There are even uh, a few wild herds of them still roaming uh, the, the Gobi Desert region. Uh, the Bactrian camel was famous for Marco Polo's expedition because it can carry 200 kilograms on its back, about, about uh, 450 pounds. So when you hear of uh, a thousand camels that were taking that were loaded down with merchandise going across the Gobi Desert you're talking about nearly 250 tons of merchandise that were being moved along or no I'm 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 yeah yeah that's right 250 tons of merchandise that was being moved along the Gobi Desert uh, on camelbacks so a uh, very uh, sturdy animal very interesting animal as well um 
I include this picture not as a part of my mission presentation, but just as some parental counseling. Um, you see, <clears throat> when, a, when a camel is young, they shove one of these sticks right through its nose. And well, when I was over there, I got to thinking about this new body piercing thing that's taking place among the kids, you know. And uh, this has a function. If you notice on the picture, I've got just a little tether tied to that, that uh, little stick in the camel's nose. And I can take this beast that weighs hundreds of pounds more than me and I can make it go just wherever I want. And I asked the woman who was tending this animal, I said, do you think one of these would work on a teenager? And they said, well, it just has the merit of not being thought about over here, but <laughs> you can give it a try. Now that's just for free, all right? Now we're going to go back to our mission presentation and talk talk about uh, the last of the five snouts or five animals of the Mongol people and that's the famed Mongol horse from which Genghis Khan managed to conquer most of the known world of his day. Well all of these animals that you have seen are, uh, are sources of food. Uh, not only are they used as beasts of burden but they eat the horse, they eat camel, all of these are considered sources of meat, also considered sources of food in ways that you might consider unlikely. Some way that you may never have used a horse was to milk uh, a horse uh, but they do all summer long they love to milk the horse and uh, they like to drink horse milk but not like this you see they'll they'll milk their animals and then they'll pour the horse's milk into a large vat and allow it to sour for two days and then they serve that beverage up as the preferred drink of summer now this is served to anyone that visits any Mongolian home in the summertime and uh, it's always served to the guest of honor first that's the eldest person I I include that to let you know I'm 36 and I'm actively recruiting anyone over 36 years old to come on mission trips to Mongolia and come and be with us. And boy, you can sample some exotic cuisine. Uh, it defines exotic when you're drinking sour horse milk. But uh, certainly one of the more unique things of Mongolian culture is what they call their white foods. All the things they produce uh, with milk, which really do get rather unique compared to our tastes in cheeses and our tastes in uh, buttermilk or sour milks, if you drink sour milk that is um, whenever we went to Mongolia I have to admit that there was a not a little bit of romance about going to such a vast open country and the thought that I might be like this man one day riding a horse and carrying Bibles on my saddlebags to hot aisle after hot aisle and meeting people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and then one day some men talked me into getting on the horse and you can see that their horses, well, more like Labrador retrievers, <laughs> you know. And so uh, immediately my dream of charging across the countryside was dashed in the head by this reality that uh, there's no way I can actually ride one of these animals for miles on miles. Maybe I could eat this animal, but uh, certainly could not ride on it. But I include this, number one, because I never get embarrassed. Number two, because it is a funny photo of me uh, riding a dog. Um, <clears throat> also, though, this is poetically to me 
exactly what we need to remember that God sometimes sees of our dreams and our visions. You know, we enter into all kinds of things in our life, whether that be marriage or our church life or our Christian life and ministry. Uh, We might be entering our job or some of you young folks going uh, to university and, and preparing for your education and for life. And we dream about crossing the rivers and the romance of riding the horse, but the reality that we often are confronted with is the photo that you're seeing before you. The fact is that God has much higher aspirations for his people if we just surrender ourselves to his will. And he will reveal to us that his thoughts are much higher uh, than our own. His dreams, his visions are much higher than our own, and we must be submissive to him. And I hope to show you tonight that God indeed had a much better plan for us than to be just delivering saddlebags to tent after tent, uh, riding atop these horses in Mongolia. Uh, when we finally awoke to our reality, we did certainly find ourselves in the midst of a beautiful country, a people who are very hospitable, who are not a violent people at all, a people who have, for their whole history, had a very scarce opportunity to ever hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we go into this part of our presentation, I really enter into it hoping to inform the churches of our work and our supporters and and prayer warriors around the country uh, about a few things, hoping to inform you with these pictures. Number one, about spiritual conflict. There really is a war that's going on for the souls of men, women, and children around the world and right outside of your doors tonight. And there is the reality that Satan desires to see souls perish and go to hell along with himself. And this fact leads us to the conflict that we experience on our mission fields. And I hope to give you information regarding that tonight so that you can be an informed prayer warrior, all right? So just watch these things and glean from them about that conflict. Another thing is to just redefine or give you again the definition of lostness. Seeing a lost world with the eyes of Jesus Christ. You know, what I found was my own heart, in my own heart, I was forgetting because I had received Christ when I was eight years old. And I don't have one of those powerful testimonies where people rolled me out of the gutter and into a church service and all of those things. That never existed in my life. And lostness, the hopelessness of life without Christ, at times escapes me. And in Mongolia, I had to have my eyes open to what lostness is. And I hope to make you once again sensitive to that so you can look out on the people and see them as Jesus saw them as sheep having no shepherd and have a heart passionate for winning the lost. And then finally, I hope to give you just a glimpse of the wonderful plan of God's grace and the plan that he has for saving people around the world, and he's presented us a wonderful opportunity. Well, to inform you, probably the one person you know about from outer Mongolia would be Genghis Khan, all right? He is the founding father of the nation, 
uh, with absolutely no disregard to our Lord and Savior, I would say that Genghis Khan is George Washington and Jesus Christ put in one person. That's how the Mongolian people actually revere him. They even believe that one day he may be reincarnated and come back and become a great political leader for them. But he is their founding father and a savior of their nation. And they, they give him great honor. Well, from the Tower of Babel, basically, as the people wandered across the plains and finally the Mongolian people wandered into this land, they carried with them a religion that I challenge you to identify tonight because there were many very similar things spoken of in our Old Testament. The Mongolians worshipped uh, worshipped the spirits and the spirits of nature. And the center point of their acts of worship is a place called an awol. Now, you might look at this and say to yourself, now that looks like a brush pile. And that's very observant because the meaning of the word awol is pile. And this pile, though, is considered to be the dwelling place of a Gazarin Edson, a lord of the earth. They believe that in these places, in these high places atop every mountain, high hill, every uh, valuable, uh, every uh, important mountain pass, that these high places or these awol are the dwelling place of one of these spirits. They believe that these spirits have the power to bring blessing and curses upon your family. So they come and they offer their offerings. Uh, They even make some chants or offer prayers around these areas. And they live their lives in fear of these spirits. They also believe in certain men and women who have power as spirit warriors. We would more identify them as shamans or a shamaness uh, here today in, in North America. And the shamans, people will come to them with their illnesses or their emotional distresses and he'll put his spirit drum or she'll put her spirit drum over them and start pounding the demons out of uh, the person's body. Whenever a shaman dies, they still consider the physical body of that person to have the power that it had in its, in its life. And so when the shaman is buried or the shamanist, they'll place them on top of the hill giving them a sky burial. And after all the flesh is rotted away from the bones, they'll collect up the bones of the shaman and they'll very carefully wrap them and place them inside of a tree that's been carefully hollowed out. And then this tree becomes a sacred tree. And that sacred tree is considered to be embedded with the powers of the shaman. In this case, this shaman was the ruler over uh, 99 heavenly spirits, 79 earthly spirits, and 81 lower earth spirits. And by performing the ritual around this tree, uh, the power of that shaman will come and it will aid you in whatever uh, your infliction is. For instance, this spirit tree, they believe, uh, can cure people from uh, illnesses like palsy or crippling. And so they'll perform the ritual that's commanded them by their shaman or maybe by a Buddhist priest and come and lay down uh, their crutches. Now, if you were listening there, you may recall the Lord at times commanding his prophets to uh, tell the Israelites to tear down the high places the prophets speaking and telling them to hew down the sacred trees. And I believe that this is a a, uh, a revelation to us about a religion that exists everywhere in the world today. I mean, my father-in-law deals with it in deepest, darkest Africa. Here I think we're going to be somewhere remote of that area. And yet in Mongolia we find out that that's been the, the religion of the people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And though they might say they don't believe that, you'll still see dozens of people 
uh, calling on a shaman, you'll always see crutches or gifts laid at the awol or at the sacred tree. So obviously, they're holding some hope in that. And that was their religious perspective at least until the reign of this man. This is Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan was the grandson of Chinggis. Now, this man was ruler over the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. The largest land empire that's ever existed in history was ruled from this man's throne. He owned the entire Asian continent minus the Indian subcontinent alone, and also all of Eastern Europe was his. When his father, Ugade died, the Mongol armies were poised to invade Italy. They would have conquered Italy. Historians have no doubt about that. And they would have just marched all the way across the continent of Europe. And you and I would have had some kind of a historic Mongolian identity. But praise God, that didn't happen. Instead, Ugade died. They had a Nadam to inaugurate Kublai Khan as king. And he elected instead to begin trying to strengthen the nation by building its infrastructure. When he did that, for the very first time in their history, they found themselves people ruling other people who had organized religions rather than these base spirit-worshipping religions. There are accounts of Kublai Khan writing the Pope requesting a hundred Christian missionaries be sent to the Mongolians to teach them about Christianity. He wrote these same requests to the religious leaders of other religions, but the irony of this one is it was never responded to. Two men, excuse me, two men attempted to go to Mongolia and halfway through the journey found the trip so arduous that they turned back. And that was the Christian history of, uh, of, the, of Mongolia and the Mongolian people. Uh, as of the end of the 1200s. Instead, the, organ, the uh, quest for an organized religion or the desire of an organized religion was met by a religion known today as Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism found a very natural fit with the Mongolian belief in all kinds of upper and earthly and lower earth spirits. Uh, the, uh, the Tibetan uh, pantheon uh, fit them that way. They also found that these temples functioned much in the same manner as their Awa, and so they began to uh, construct temples all across uh, their homeland, becoming very devout uh, worshippers of idols instead of piles. They they have their idols that they pray to. They also have unique doctrines in Tibetan Buddhism. One of them the doctrine of karma. The other one the doctrine of reincarnation. Reincarnation is the principal doctrine when we start talking about the most famed face of Tibetan Buddhism. And that is the Dalai Lama. If you don't know who the Dalai Lama is, I hope to inform you something about him tonight. Seeing as to how... He was recently entertained in the White House by our president. This man is worshipped by the adherents of Tibetan Buddhism. You see, they believe that the Dalai Lama is a reincarnate spirit called the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama means the ocean of wisdom. And this man is to believe, believed to be the, uh, the uh, habitation of the 14th reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. And actually, when you go in the temples, if you look at this photo, uh, you can see some money laying before the picture. And you also see some other idols that are facing the picture. 
picture. And those idols are there for when men fail to pray to the Dalai Lama. Uh, those idols never sleep. They never have to eat. They never have to walk away for any reason. So they're always there uh, giving reverence. And people believe very, very fervently in this man. He is worshipped and prayed to as a God, and they believe that he is inhabited just as a God. Well, the reason this person is significant is that this area, this dwelling place, is the uh, the uh, southern or winter dwelling place of a man called the Bogdkhan of Mongolia. The Bogdkhan was considered to be the third reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. So the Mongolian people became very intimately tied into the Tibetan Buddhist religion. And after the, the original uh, Bogdhan died, the Dalai Lam uh, Bogdhan, when he died, they considered that man to have reached nirvana since he had been the habitation of the Dalai Lam. And so this man was then considered to be a reincarnate spiritual king. He was their religious and political leader. And the whole nation became... Uh, fervently committed to Tibetan Buddhism. As a matter of fact, at the turn of last century, 1900, Mongolia was the most religious nation on the planet. 98% of the people were adherents to Tibetan Buddhism. No other nation even came close as, uh, as pertaining to its national religion. This is the scene that existed in the 1900s. 60% of the men were devoted to the priesthood to Tibetan Buddhist, being Tibetan Buddhist monks. Uh, they could not marry. They could not have children. And as a result, the population of Mongolia was imploding at 1900 because of their singular devotion to Tibetan Buddhism. They also had built temples. They had erected idols across all the face of their country. An absolutely staggering number of religious relics are still to be found that were later destroyed in 1921 when the Russians came into Mongolia. You see, the Russians... Uh, in their vast push and, and the uh, belief that the Chinese were going to one day rise up and, uh, um, and cause a vast war in that region needed a place that they could place their armies that would not be so threatening as putting them on the Russian border itself. And so through the uh, turnings of this man, Sukhbatr, uh, Sukhbatr took the uh, Mongolian homeland and invited the Russians to come in and establish military bases. And when they did that, Mongolia ceded political and military power to the Russians and did not join the Soviet Union, the USSR, but instead became the world's second communist nation. And they actually served as a buffer state, uh, just a puppet, if you would, between Russia and China in case the Chinese would ever push to invade. And you still to this day can find uh, old military bases that have been long since abandoned by the Russians. Well, from 1921 all the way into 1990, Mongolia existed as a communist nation. In 1972, an Englishman by the name of John Gibbons uh, came into the country. He was the son of a Baptist minister. He came into the country to study the Mongolian language. And as he was there, he began to ask Mongolian people about uh, their knowledge of Jesus. Have you ever heard of a man named Jesus Christ? 
And after asking person after person, he found no one who had even heard the name of Jesus until he spoke with a college professor who remembered discussing the origins of the Christian religion and that Jesus Christ was the central person of Christianity. And that was the only person he encountered who knew anything about the history that we consider so dear and the person who is so dear to us and we believe to the world. So he returned to his homeland, John did. He returned to his homeland with a burden to translate for the very first time into the Mongolian language, the Halk Mongol uh, dialect, uh, the, the Word of God. Beginning then, he finally completed the New Testament in 1989. Now, ironically... 1989 was the exact year that a student-led democracy movement was taking root in Mongolia. And they began to ask the Russians to give them the freedom of speech, not particularly freedom of religion, but freedom to read the books that, that were uh, uh, kept from them. And, and all of this history and culture around the world, they were curious as to what was outside of their country. And they began asking these things. And and by 1990, that uh, movement finally came to a head. About the same time the Berlin Wall came down, the Mongolians had a great movement there on Sulbatar Square, here in this square. And in their city of Ulaanbaatar, they requested, demanded that the Russians leave their office. And in November of 1990, they all together collectively resigned from their positions. And in 48 hours, they left the country. Now, coincidentally, November of 1990 was when the New Testament had just come off of the printing press over in Europe. And where they were beginning to think they would have to smuggle the Bible in, uh, in saddlebags you might say, they found that this country now had no law, no border patrol, no Russian parliament that would say certain books are excluded, and found themselves with no one to tell them they could not send these books via the train directly into the country of Mongolia. And so that's what they did. They loaded every published Bible and shipped it directly into the capital city of Ulaanbaatar, our home city. And in 1991, for the very first time in all their history, the Mongolian people held in their hands the Word of God and the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Within the next two years, you have the very first people who identify themselves as being followers of Jesus Christ. And we praise God for His grace He has shown. But remember, from Babel to 1992, men, women, children perished, never having heard of the message that in America, quite frankly, we take for granted today. That message of salvation, the name of Jesus Christ. Well, God has used the last decade of time to do many things, and one of them was saving a young woman by the name of Tsitsge. Tsitsge is on uh, your lower right. Uh, wearing glasses there. She is a Mongolian-born Chinese woman and some Chinese evangelists upon the opening of Mongolia, uh, the, the, uh, the democratization of Mongolia, some Chinese evangelists came up from mainland China and conducted some crusades. They, they went among the Chinese community, which numbers about 10,000 people there, and uh, Tsitsuke and her whole family received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Well, she was part of a Chinese Baptist church 
that then experienced a great deal of difficulty in the late 90s and by 2000 had nearly disbanded. And in two years, uh, in 2002, she was contacted by a group of people from Singapore wanting to know if she would be interested in starting a Mongolian women's Bible study. Well, they offered her a, a very uh, modest salary to be able to do that and, and asked her if she'd be interested, and she took them up on the opportunity. When we arrived in 2004, she'd been working for two years and had a group of about 12 women. We were introduced to her through our translator, and the day that we arrived, uh, her jaw almost literally dropped as we walked in the room because she informed me that about two months prior to our arrival, they had begun praying that God would send them a missionary. The reason why was three of the husbands of these women were interested in coming to the Bible study, and Sitzgay said she did not feel comfortable standing before them and teaching the Word of God and told the women they should pray that a man would come who would come and teach them from the Scriptures. And then she says to me, do you think you'd be interested in giving some Bible lessons to us? And so, as I say, uh, some things you don't have to pray and fast over to answer yes. And so we've had a wonderful relationship with these people, and this is, uh, represents the group that we've worked with for three years. We have had relationships with these people. We've seen uh, them grow, and we have hopes that this will be the group from which God will allow us to plant our first church in Mongolia. This picture was taken in July of 2007. This Sunday was the first time that I spoke uh, and gave an entire message in Mongolian with no translator. So very significant day. And we had about 30 to 35 people, including six men that were there with us. So I praise the Lord for a group like this that's very patient with an ignorant foreigner coming in and not knowing how to speak their language and just being very patient and loving toward me and my family. And we've enjoyed our time with them. But when we arrived in Mongolia, we had three principal goals. The first one was uh, to survive. Uh, you know, survival is good. Uh, you can't do a lot when you're dead. At least that's what I think. Um, so uh, the Lord was very gracious to us. We not only survived, but we found everything that we need in order to live. And we live a very decent life uh, in a third world country. Um, and we have a people who we can worship with and who we can learn from. And so we believe that God has certainly met uh, that request. The second thing was to learn the Mongolian language and culture. Now, the Mongolian language is completely unrelated to anything we would be familiar with and uh, is considered one of the 10 hardest languages for a foreigner to learn. That's straight from our State Department, that they believe it's one of the 10 hardest languages for a Westerner to learn. Um, so after two years of study, uh, I am a master's degree recipient here in America. Uh, I am a fourth grader in Mongolia. So um, I consider that quite an accomplishment. I, I feel really good about myself. But uh, we, uh, we've certainly enjoyed being able to study. I guess one thing I will never, ever take for granted after that experience is the privilege of being able to learn the privilege of being able to process information and to learn how to communicate something to people on the other side of the world. It is a tremendous honor to be able to do that.
translated from Mongol into you, would be that the Lord of the universe truly loved humanity. And that's why he sent his only son. For this reason, people who otherwise must enter eternal punishment, if they believe in his son, Jesus, can have eternal life. I think you can nitpick John 3.16 out of that in the Mongolian language. And to be able to share that message with people and be understood is one of the greatest privileges that I have ever had in my life. The final thing that I ask churches to pray for, even beginning in November, uh, final uh, asking for prayer uh, in November, uh, excuse me, November and December of 2006, uh, that was uh, that uh, we find a platform for ministry. Mongolia, while it's not a closed communist nation, does not constitutionally recognize Christianity as being a religion. Now that presents some unique challenges because technically it's a creative access nation still. You cannot get a missionary visa in Mongolia as you can get in Mexico, for instance, or in the Philippines or many of our other nations where we're serving uh, throughout the BMA. Uh, we, we can be invited by a religious group and work. Well, no religious Christian group is identified and so you can't just come in and say, I'm a missionary, give me a stamp. So we have to find what we call in America a real job that we can do. And then uh, uh, through that real job, hopefully we can carry the gospel to people. My prayer was, having just been a Baptist preacher all of my life, I was a pastor in the BMA for 11 years prior to being called to Mongolia. Uh, having only that to my resume, I said, you know, the only thing I'm really good for is telling people what the Bible says. And I would really like to find a job, if that's possible, to do just that. Well, in January of last year, little did we know how perfectly God would answer that request. We were having dinner with the Terry family, and Tom Terry is the directing manager of Eagle Television in Mongolia. Now, Tom was handpicked by Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ started Eagle Television in the mid-90s, and it was in tandem with the Jesus Film Project, and they canvassed the entire country with the Jesus Film, and then established this station in hopes that it would become a Christian broadcast station. Well, that had not materialized. Even uh, after about eight years of time, they had very few Christian programs that were coming across the, the, the station, and so Tom was put in uh, to the task of getting Christian broadcasts coming out of Eagle Television and, and to bring up the percentage of Christian programming. Now, Tom's a good Southern Baptist guy out of um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. I don't know if I'm pointing to Albuquerque there or not. It's probably that way, isn't it? This way? That way. Yeah. I don't know where I'm at. It's <clears throat> but, uh, um, but Brother Tom and I were talking and he told me that uh, this past year, Eagle Television was on course to have 40% Christian broadcasting. Uh, they were doing it by getting programs like programs from Focus on the Family, programs like Love Worth Finding, Adrian Rogers Ministry, and translating those sermons into Mongolian and then just broadcasting these foreigners giving, uh, giving a message that was translated into Mongolian. He said, but you know, what we really want to do is we want to begin Mongolian language broadcasting, but we've got a problem. 
He said, you see, I've been asking others, uh, the Southern Baptists, the Evangelical Free, if they had personnel that could come and work with Eagle Television and produce uh, Mongolian language programming because we don't have anybody that's had time to go to, uh, to Mongolian language school. He said, this is one thing that we really are wanting to do here. Uh, in the coming year, 2008, we're wanting to start a through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, what the Bible is all about program. We want to develop it first into a seminar that we offer all around the city of Ulaanbaatar and then develop into a, uh, into a television program that will be broadcast uh, through the rest of the country. Uh, do you think you'd be interested in doing something like that with us? And I thought, well, <clears throat> some things you don't have to pray over a long time, do you? Because this sounded like a pretty good fit. I said, well, let's talk a little more about it. And he said, well, here's the deal. If you think you would be interested in producing this program and working with Eagle, we'll give you a green card and write out your work description, your job description, as being a consultant for Eagle Television Mongolia. And your job would be to offer this what the Bible is all about seminar, produce it into a television program, and buy and distribute Bibles to everyone who participates in the seminars uh, around Ulaanbaatar and around Mongolia, wherever you might be offering the seminar. Do you think that would be a good suit for you? Well, all I can say is amen. Right, folks? Um, so when we return... Uh, rather than going through the long task of all of the red tape of the old socialist system that's still in place, we have the privilege of just entering into a working relationship, and we basically have our own ministry as the BMA, uh, wherein we're going to carry the Bible, uh, carry the Word of God to the entire country, 40% of Mongolia lives within just a few minutes drive of where our television station is. We have a television station that will be advertising our seminars for free as part of their ministry and we'll merely have our green card and have the privilege of being restricted to doggone it only giving the Bible to people and telling them what the Bible's about. So I praise God for the way that he went from a guy that thought saddlebags were a really good idea to think of it reaching over 40% of the people by airwaves and by seminars around the country of Mongolia. Now, I was asked about support. Well, quite naturally, our work fund is going to go into the production of this, the purchase of Bibles prayerfully. The Old and New Testament will publish, be published by the end of next year. If every seminar is attended by 50 to 100 people, uh, what we're looking for is a good church planting mix and a, hopefully a good synthesis with church planting work. Uh, you could be looking at $10 to $12 a Bible and, uh, you know, 100 people. You're looking... Uh, at a sizable amount of money that goes into uh, into just buying the Bibles and renting a facility uh, that we can be using for that. So consider um, our work fund as one of your projects. I was also telling Brother Mike, uh, uh, kind of laughing, but at the same time crying, uh, we purchased a vehicle that was a light suspension vehicle. Uh, my first big mistake in Mongolia, as whenever I go back, one of my first jobs is to get the suspension repaired because after one year, uh, it's ruined. And what we're going to be doing is starting a special uh, project for a heavy suspension four-wheel drive vehicle. And so if you all are looking for VBS projects or if you have auxiliary groups that are raising uh, toward things like that, I certainly uh, would, would love it if you could uh, give to those two things. 
Um, the final thing I want to close with is going to be our message for the evening. This is, uh, number one, my adorable son Isaac. Uh, number two, this is Zambal. Zambal has become a very precious person uh, to us. She's not a believer yet, but the Lord is working on that. Zambal came to our home and... Uh, uh, through a friend of a friend, her daughter became involved in the Girl Scout troop that Laura and a worker at the U.S. Embassy uh, were working with. And Zomble one day was visiting our home. She, by the way, is who made um, our, our Dells, our traditional clothing we're wearing tonight. And uh, Zomble was looking at my New Testament that was laying on the coffee table when she was at our house. And it was all, you know, greasy and uh, pages were marked in and everything. But she was looking very curiously. And I said, Zombel, have you ever read the Bible? She said, no, I can't afford a Bible. Uh, they're too expensive. A Bible costs about $3.50, which might represent 10 to 20% of her monthly income. So a very serious expense. I said, Zombel, do you know anything about Jesus? She said, well, I've heard about Jesus on Eagle Television, you know, but I don't know anything really about him. So I said, well, some friends of mine have given me Bibles for me to give to other people. Do you think that you would like to, if you would like to read the Bible, do you think I could give you one of these New Testaments? She says, oh, yes, certainly. And she received it with gladness. And uh, I didn't know then that I'd committed a social error in doing that. You see, <clears throat> the... Uh, highest gift you can give a Mongolian person is a book. And the highest of those gifts, of course, is a religious book. So when I gave her that, it was sort of like I gave her, you know, a convertible red Corvette, you know, for a first gift. Um, there was no way to give me more honor in a gift, not as far as tangible monetary value, but the highest honor I could give her was this religious book. So in order to, to return something to me, she invited me uh, and my family on a picnic and I was instead given honor that I didn't deserve. I was the youngest man on the trip, and they made a dish called horhug. And horhug is basically a roasted goat. Uh, I invite you to look at my wife's scrapbooks that are out in the uh, foyer, and you can see that whole process of getting the goat ready uh, for, uh, for going in the pot. But they roast the goat, and then they serve it out to folks. They do it by, ro by uh, heating rocks up. And then they put these hot rocks in with the meat and potatoes and carrots and, and uh, onions. And so it's like a big pot roast that they make uh, out in the woods. And they served me the peace of honor. That was the honor that I didn't deserve. And, and being the youngest man, I was given this custom of uh, taking this big drumstick-looking uh, chunk of meat and first cutting off 70 servings from it and giving each person just a little bit of, uh, of that shoulder blade because nobody would ever just make a pig of themselves and eat all of this meat, see? And then I was to eat everything off of it so that it was a clean white bone. And then they had removed all of the rocks from out of the... Uh, out of the pot and they piled them up and they said now smash the bone on top of this pile of rocks and so I did without ever asking myself a question I hope you're being observant to everything that we've said because what I had just done was I had offered a sacrifice on an wall without even knowing it the man the moment that I smashed the uh, bone he says good that's shaman's medicine you see anywhere that an animal has been slaughtered and has been given to people as food, it's believed that there's a Godzillinitz in there. So we, we make a small pile out of all of these rocks, and then you offer an offering on top of them, and you bust these shoulder blades to show, uh, to pay homage to the spirit 
that's in that place. Well, I was livid. I was like, I've just been talking to you about Jesus and you think I believe in bones, you know? Uh, so I was quite angry and uh, we went home. I was complaining to Laura. She didn't really want to hear it, you know? Uh, so we get home and I'm arguing with the Lord. How on earth am I going to carry the gospel to people that believe in bones on top of rocks? Is what I'm wondering. And that night, admittedly, very fitful night's sleep. And the next morning I got up. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to open them to Ephesians 2. And we've got just a very brief thought that I want to leave with you tonight regarding our attitude to a lost world. Very brief thought. I was reading and had intended to read the book of Ephesians for my quiet time that morning. And as I'm reading chapter 2 and talking with the Lord about this, he taught me a very precious lesson. This is, of course, a text that is being written to us as believers and talking about people who are outside of the wonderful grace of God. And listen to these words. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's those on the outside. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then there in parenthesis, by grace... You're saved. By grace, you're saved. As I read those words, literally, as my eyes passed over them, the Lord spoke to me that morning as I complained. <clears throat> and he asked me a profound question. And it's this. Tony, why do your people split wishbones at Thanksgiving? Anybody want to answer that? Or are you going to try and convince me you don't do it? Huh? Yeah. Why do we do that? Well, because if you get that tall piece, you get your wish, right? Then a flood of questions that follow that. Why a four-leaf clover? Why a horseshoe over your door? Why a lucky rabbit's foot? Or, convicting all Baptists all over the country, why black-eyed peas and jaw meat on New Year's Day? <laughs> I forgot the cornbread. And cabbage, other people have told me. But everybody knows those are all for what? Good luck. Good luck. And you see what the Lord said to me that day is, do you see how gracious I've been to you. Do you see how gracious he's been to us? Do you know that centuries ago, probably your grandmother, because my grandmother would never have believed splitting a wishbone would give a wish, right? No, somewhere our ancestors brought this with them. It was a belief that broken bones actually do something. We think it's a gag, but you know what? It's not. A lot of those things, those forms have lost their function to us. Why? Because of the grace of God and by the blood of Jesus, you see. Some of those things like Christmas trees and Easter bunnies don't have the same meaning to us that they certainly had 
a millennia ago to our ancestors. And God was saying to me, Tony, do you see what I saved you from? Maybe I wasn't looking at it here all those times as a pastor I read it. But you know what? I see what God has saved us, saved us from now. He saved us from a hopeless, helpless life believing that spirits have any control or influence over us versus what the blood of Christ offers us when we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, folks, we have a great privilege of living in a country and having been a people with a history of knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whether you're a first-generation believer in your family or whether, like my family, you're multiple generations of people that have professed the name of Jesus, the fact is we've lived in a place where that is a familiar message. And you see, God has sent us to make that message familiar to the Mongolian people. They are the children of disobedience. They are presently the children of wrath. Yes, there's a number who are believers, but the majority, vast majority, 99.5% still have never had a significant explanation of the gospel such that would require them to make a decision concerning Jesus Christ. And that's the opportunity that God has given us in Mongolia today. Give him praise for the doors he has opened. And I hope you have been illumined concerning the spiritual conflict, illumined concerning the lostness of the Mongol people. And I hope that your eyes have been opened to what the Lord is doing in the country of Mongolia. He has opened every door and given us every reason to expect that he's going to do great things through the work he's called us to. And I give him all the praise for that. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and I'll turn this service over to uh, Brother Mike. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of sharing your word tonight and also of giving this testimony of the wonderful work that you've presented to us in Mongolia. Father, I pray for the people at our Bible study today as they are going about their jobs. I also pray for Zambal, Lord, as, as uh, we have this relationship, we hope to uh, rekindle upon our return at the end of February. Father, I thank you so much for College Avenue Baptist Church and Fifth Street Baptist Church for them uh, hosting us and giving us the opportunity to share this. Father, for their love and desire to see your great commission obeyed and carried out to the uttermost parts of the earth from West Texas to literally the ends of the earth. Father, I pray that you would bless each of these churches, that they would be a light in their community. Father, that her members would go out and be uh, just very hungry soul winners for your righteousness. Father, I pray for Mongolia tonight that your peace would be shed on their hearts and that thousands upon thousands of people will hear and make a positive decision to receive Christ as their Savior as a result of this ministry. Lord, I pray you would bless the rest of our time together and our fellowship with one another. We ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.